Um, I, I don't know how many of you know Iggy Pop. Iggy, uh, age 69, is a singer, uh, actor, musician. He was the song leader. Uh, if you saw earlier pictures of him, you'd, you'd recognize him maybe. Kind of a crazy looking guy. His band, The Stooges, was inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. He turned 69 last year, and uh, around the time of his birthday in November, he was interviewed and asked if, in light of his age, that he was beginning to think about his own mortality. And this was his answer. He said, well, of course I do. Part of the experience of being my age, and particularly in my corner of my field, is that all sorts of people that I know are, are already gone. And then all the people in my, my band, all the people in my group, with the exception of one, are all gone. So obviously I began thinking about myself. What exactly do you think, he was asked. Pop said, what is a reasonable amount of time that I can look forward to? That's a good question, actually. It, it sounds like one of those psalms. How, how long do we have? Oh, our, our lives are like grass. He's like, how, how much longer do I have? And then he said, okay, I'm alive. Great. So what is good about that? I, Iggy maybe didn't know it in that moment, but he was asking what philosophers call one of the biggies, a fundamental or a universal question, what is good about being alive? And it's a question that, that all of us, I would say, ask at some point in our lives, whether we kind of know it or not. It's one of those life questions. What is the good life? Dallas Willard, uh, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, points out that Jesus, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was addressing this same question. What is the good life? And, and a follow-up question is, who is the truly good person? We've been in a series on the Beatitudes, and, and these Beatitudes speak of the good life, this life that God blesses, this life that God approves, this life that is in sync with God's life. And, and it turns out the good life, the truly good person, what do they look like? They look like a Beatitude person, a person whose thoughts and words and deeds are being shaped more and more and more to be like Jesus. And they happen to be in that person in whom the kingdom of God is beginning to break out in their lives. So this morning, we're going to look at the seventh beatitude, what, what is maybe the most well-known of all the beatitudes. Before we do, let's read these words. We find them in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to invite you to stand, uh, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We begin in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are there those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now you notice in this beatitude, Jesus doesn't bless those who have a, a peaceful disposition, even though that is probably a good thing. It, it, it's not blessed are the peaceful. It's not even blessed are the peacekeepers. When we think of peacekeepers, I think of Canadians, right? We, we have peacekeeping missions. We're kind of known as being a peacekeeping tribe. 
But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And here's the thing, you can love peace, but not love peacemaking. They're very different animals. Now, when Jesus, what he does is he takes two words and he combines them together, this word peace and making. And I think just there it reminds us that peace just doesn't materialize out of thin air. It doesn't just appear. Jesus seems to say that peace isn't something that just happens. It's something that, that needs to be made. So why don't we begin with a definition of peace? For many, the word peace has kind of a, an inward and an outward dimension. Inwardly, we think of this uh, state of tranquility, you know, uh, a peace of mind. Not, I'll give you a peace of my mind. Not that kind of peace of mind, but a peace of mind. Outwardly, we might think of peace as the absence of conflict, uh, the absence of, of fighting or war. And the biblical concept of peace includes those ideas. It just goes much farther and much deeper. Um, the Hebrew word for peace is what? Anyone know? Shalom. 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 It's such a great, it's one of my favorite biblical words. Arthur, one of our members who, who uh, uh, speaks some Hebrew, knows, has learned some Hebrew, he will often use this as a goodbye. If you catch him at the, back, at, at the door on his way out, he'll say, Shalom, Shalom. You can do that. It's a greeting. Or goodbye. But shalom is this expansive word that can mean wholeness or fullness or abundance, well-being, health, vitality, flourishing. And when the Bible speaks about shalom, it rarely points to that kind of private inner state of calm. When the Bible speaks about shalom, it has in, in mind wholeness just in the, the, the broadest sense, relationally, economically, politically, emotionally, spiritually. Shalom is this being in harmony with or being in sync with God and yourself and, and others and with all of creation. Let me ask you uh, just a question this morning. Would any of you admit to ever having watched a beauty pageant? Anybody? It's not politically correct to watch them anymore, is it? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you've seen it, right? Absolutely. I haven't seen one in decades, but I grew up on beauty pageants. I, I think we only had three channels, so I, we, I watched whatever was on the telly. Uh, <laughs> but I remember what the, the contestants would often be interviewed, and one of the common questions would be, if you could achieve one thing in your life, what would it be? Exactly. One of the common answers would be world peace, right? And I mean, you kind of you, you, you look at that as being kind of a hopelessly naive response, a bit of a cliched answer, but... It's actually a great answer. World peace would be a great thing. I mean, who doesn't love peace? Well, actually, not everyone loves peace. Consider military budgets around the world. I mean, trillions. They top trillions every year. War is big business. If global peace happened tomorrow, not everyone would be happy about it. And then at a more personal level, the, the prospect of peace is equally challenging because we have to actually go about seeking to make it, and we don't always want to. I mean, think about that family member who maybe you've been estranged from, you know, you, the one who hurt you, or, or you hurt. You know, are you or they ready to let go of bitterness or, or judgment? Are you ready to forgive? Are you ready to ask for forgiveness? Are you prepared to, to bless the person who has wronged you? Maybe later we, later we tell, tell ourselves, I'm not quite ready to make peace. And so if we're honest, we live in a, in a world where globally and, and personally, not everyone truly loves peace. But, but this is a fact, and we know this. God does. God, 
God absolutely loves peace. God's vision for us is shalom, this, this widespread, all-encompassing peace for our families, for our city, for our country, for our world. And here Jesus says something quite radical. He says when his kingdom begins breaking out in a person's life, one of the marks of that reality will be peacemaking. You'll be a peacemaker. Um, Daryl Johnson talks about how this role of peacemaking, this designation of peacemaker is such a, a dignifying thing for a human being. To be called a peacemaker is a really, really good thing. He says, because only the living God can make shalom. <laughs> He says, shalom is a divine quality, something that only God can do. And yet Jesus calls those who follow him what? Shalom makers. I love it. And not only is this a, an amazing designation, it actually helps us understand the rest of this beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Why? Because they're resembling the Father, the ultimate peacemaker. They're sharing in, in the family business, which is peacemaking his heart for peace. And so it's appropriate to pray regularly with St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. This leads to the question, what will peacemaking look like for us? First and fundamentally, it begins by experiencing peace with God for ourselves. Peacemakers are at peace with God, not because they've made peace with God, but because God has made peace with them through Jesus on the cross. And so the implicit assumption that, that peace has been made is that there was a pre-existing war and hostility between God and between every single human heart. Everyone is born. Scripture is just very, very clear on this. Everyone is born in a condition of enmity towards God. A built-in hostility. What, what's the proof of this? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the only time that God became vulnerable to us, the only time God ever became weak, the only time God ever became touchable, we killed him. Um, somebody once asked Dallas Willard if he believed in total depravity. And his response, he said, I believe in sufficient depravity. <laughs> I believe, he says, I believe that every human being is sufficiently depraved, sufficiently evil, dark, whatever you want to use, uh, term you want to use for that, that when we get to heaven, no one will be able to say, I merited this. I earned this. What Dallas is saying that every single one of us needs a peacemaker for ourselves. Um, anyone know who Andrew Garfield is? Uh, movie star actor who this year was nominated for an Academy Award for his uh, starring role in Hacksaw Ridge. And uh, a subsequent film that he was in was called Silence. A uh, very interesting film, haven't seen it yet, but, but in that story he's apparently playing a, a missionary that goes to Japan back in the 18th century and trying to rescue another missionary who's gone missing. And, and as preparation for that role, Andy, Andy Garfield said he studied the Bible. He studied actually the life of Jesus. And he got a hold of a copy of Ignatius's book, uh, The Confession of Christ or The Imitation of Christ, uh, whoever wrote it. And he, he began studying this, this book and he said something that I have not heard articulated in a very public way by a movie star before. He said, as I studied more and more about Jesus, I fell in love with Jesus. I just couldn't not love this man. That's what he said. 
He didn't say, I became a Christian, I, I, I got baptized. He says, I just fell in love with Jesus. Well, I'd say he's well on the way. That's a good, good first step if that's the case. But Garfield went on to, to talk about this fear that he carried. And I think it's a, in this interview that he was interviewed, he was responding to this. He says, this is a fear that I think we all can identify with. And he, he, he described it this way. He says, the main thing I, I wanted healing for that I brought to Jesus was this feeling of not enoughness. This feeling of that forever longing for the perfect expression of this thing that is inside each of us. That wound of not enoughness. That wound of feeling like what I have to offer is never enough. I, I don't know anybody who couldn't relate to those words. I don't know anyone. Garfield was trying to put into words really what, what represents a spiritual reality, which is our, our kind of fundamental broken relationship with the God who made us. We got this broken relationship with this holy God. And, and, and then the Beatitudes have simply reinforced this, that we actually come to God with not enough. We are actually, by definition, not enough. We feel that in some ways because it is a, a true part of our reality. We, we've talked about this, how coming into our relationship is actually kind of walking through the first four Beatitudes. We, we come recognizing first our poverty of spirit. We become really open and clear about the fact that we are not enough in and of ourselves. And, and, and then we come to a place where we mourn our sin. We grieve over our hostility towards God. And then we come in meekness, surrendering our wills to God. And we come knowing that our good deeds don't count a scrap toward making us righteousness. You see, folks, in order for us to, to know peace, in order for us to be reconciled with God, our sin and our rebellion and this, this hostility had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. We needed a peacemaker. We needed someone, someone representative, someone in a position of authority to wave the white flag and bring the hostilities to an end. And this is what Jesus does on the cross as Ephesians 2.14 puts it, it says, Jesus is our peace. He's the one who has broken down the wall of hostility toward God. How does he do this? He, he takes our place in judgment. Jesus bearing God's rightful hostility towards us so that he could turn around, Jesus could turn around and say, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. How great is the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's called being born again. That's salvation that is brought in Christ. And Jesus has made peace with God on, on, on our behalf. We need only to receive this peace as a gift. So let me ask you, do you know, do you know peace with God? I sure hope so. Has his peace become, become kind of the founding principle of your life? No longer defined by my not enoughness, but, but by God's peace and his love and his salvation. If you're, if you're not sure this morning, would you like his peace? You only need to, to receive the gift, to enjoy his forgiveness and, and receive that, and, and then invite him to lead your life and follow him for the rest of your days. And he'll teach you what that looks like along the way. Um, I, I'd say this, just to conclude that point, is that one doesn't need to be a Christian to engage in peacemaking. I mean, I, I know successful negotiators out there, 
But let me say, ultimate peace begins with enjoying peace with God. It's a game changer for us. As we begin experiencing God's love and forgiveness and grace, as we begin experiencing shalom, it then empowers us to to extend love and forgiveness to others who are at odds with, with each other or with God. Peacemaking is born of God. It's empowered by God. It's the work of God in us and and in our world. Okay, secondly, peacemaking is an intentional pursuit. Hebrews 12, 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Psalm 34, 14 says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The, The word seek means strive after. The word Pursue is a more intense word. In, in Hebrew, it has the, the idea of pursuing someone or hunting something. It's an aggressive word to run after, to, to chase after, to chase something down. And we see this in Jesus, in his example, how he went to great extremes to seek peace, to pursue it. Again, it, it, it doesn't just happen. We'll have to be very intentional about peacemaking. Now, Jesus' teaching on, on peacemaking does apply to the world stage. And, and we know there are going to be those that God calls to get involved working on a, a word, world stage level, and we can do that through the political system and so forth. We can engage in those ways. But this pursuit of peacekeeping, that peacemaking, I should say, that we see in the New Testament is most often applied where? To our personal relationships. Right there. As I've said before, the the kingdom of God seems to move at the pace of relationships. And so peacemaking is going to find its primary expression where we live, like we talked about earlier, where it's going to be with the people we work with and and the people we live with. It's going to be the neighbors that we have and and, and with our closest friendships. And it's going to be in our church family. A lot of the words in the New Testament, peacekeeping, had to do with what it meant to be a church together. Uh, Maybe you've heard the old joke about a man who was stranded on a desert island. He lived alone there for several months until finally a search party found him. And and when the the rescue boat arrived, the captain noticed that there were three huts on the island. And uh, the captain says, what are those huts? And the castaway pointed and says, well, that's my house. And he went on to say, that's my my church. And the captain says, well, what about that other hut? And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church. Do you know, there are, um, I, there are just countless scriptures about resolving conflict in the New Testament. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. There's, and they're so wise. <laughs> they're so rich. I mean, one of the reasons I, I, I actually believe in God and believe in Jesus and hold to his teachings is because there's such wisdom there. I mean, anybody reading these things, they go, wow, that's upside. That, that works. Like Matthew 18 uh, talks about when you have a conflict with somebody, how, how you walk that out in such a respectful way. I, I think of, of uh, other passages, I think of Ephesians, who, who says, be, speak the truth to one another, you know? But how do you speak the truth to one another? Not by, by cursing somebody down, but, but by doing it with love. And then James, James says this magic phrase that I think is so important, be slow to take offense. Well, guys, we just obeyed that little piece right there. It'd be a huge, huge deal. Be slow to take offense or be slow to speak and quick to listen. Great words, right? And here's what I, what I found is that, uh, and especially as, as a Christian, um, healthy peacemaking 
practices that we see in Scripture, they're very, very easy to believe in. They're also very, very easy to practically ignore in real life. This is what I found. What's our tendency? Uh, I think for some of us, it's like high noon. It, you know, you've got the pistol ready to go, and when, when you've got conflict, I mean, you know, it's bam, 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 bam. You know, it's a shootout kind of scenario for some of us, right? When it comes to expressions of our anger and what conflict does to us. Some of you are like that. You're like rhinos. It's like charge in with fury. Yeah. You guys raise your hands right now. We're going to usher you out of the church. That's what we're going to do. No rhinos in this church. And, and then here's the thing, though. And, and, and I don't think that tends to be the tendency of what we experience in church life, per se, because I think we kind of know that that's inappropriate. A rhino might be a rhino in their own home uh, with their spouse or with their kids or with their roommates or whatever. They're not as likely to be a rhino in this environment. Why? Because we just know it's not cool. It's not kosher. And so, so because of that, we, we know somebody might call us on that. Hey, you're out of line. So what do we do in church life? We're more likely to choose another option, which is to freeze each other out, right? Uh, the cooler approach. We withdraw. We, we avoid the person. We maybe avoid the hard conversations. We, we, we hold on to, to bitterness inside. And, and here's the thing. It, it begins to fester and it begins, begins to grow and becomes something that's, that's toxic. It leaks out is what, what we're saying. Is it, it may not come out then, but it will come out eventually, sometimes in an eruption, very, very inappropriately. But it's, it's a reason why oftentimes when people get hurt in, in, a, in a church community is, what do they choose to do? Going to go down to the church down the street. And, and somebody says, well, why did they leave? Well, we really don't know. Why? Because they didn't have the conversation. I, uh, so tempting in our, in our relationships, whether it be in church or in marriage or at work, to simply avoid the hard conversations. Sometimes for the sake of peace, we withdraw, but we don't achieve peace. What we achieve is a false peace. It doesn't create a, a healthy relationship. It doesn't help create a healthy friendship or marriage. And I'm, I'm speaking to myself here. Um, if I can be honest, my biggest regrets in my life are the conversations I did not have. And, and I, I can think of one particular relationship where I was offended and frustrated and I carried that for years before I actually got the courage to actually have the conversation with that person. In the meantime, that relationship was ugly and toxic and difficult. And I regret, I, I should have I had that conversation years before. So I'm speaking to myself here. I think I might have gotten it honestly. It turns out my, I, I shared this kind of a, a trait of my extended family. I was asked to do my aunt's funeral. I've told you some of you about this. I talked about this on New Year's Day if you want to hear about it. But there was this long-standing feud between my aunt and uh, kind of the rest of our family. And nobody, I, for the most part, nobody knew about it. It was kind of secret. But I know now, I, I know just from hearing different sides of the story how ugly it was and hurtful. And, and folks, it's now, now it's too late for peacemaking, right? 
As I said at that funeral, I don't think I've ever been so bold, but I said, don't wait for someone to be on their deathbed to try and work something out. <laughs> now, now is the time. Don't procrastinate on that. Again, peacemaking is just not this passive thing that we wait to and, and pray for and wait for it to happen. The language Jesus uses here is active. It's aggressive. And so I, I, would, I would challenge you is, is take initiative in this. Uh, begin opting for those difficult conversations. Maybe as a response to this message today, there's, there's someone you need to start praying for. Or, or you know there's a, a letter to someone that you need to send or a boss that you need to talk to. Don't put that off. In the strength and the courage of God, pursue peace. Um, third point. So peacemaking requires great courage. It's hard. Let me add to that third point is that peacemaking is costly. Uh, Mother Teresa is quoted as saying, when I feel the, feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Jesus didn't bless the peacekeepers or the peace lovers. He blessed the peacemakers. And the peacemaker, their role is not to make everybody happy. They do the hard work of pointing out where peace doesn't exist and then advocate for the attitudes and the actions and the relationships which will allow for peace to reign. And it's costly. Let me, let me give you just one powerful example from history. In, in the 5th century, the, the monk Telemachus, who'd been living by himself in the desert, trying to devote himself to God, he came to the conclusion that he couldn't serve God without serving other people. And so he abandoned his life of solitude and he traveled to Rome, arriving in time to, to watch this, this victory celebration where Gothic prisoners were, were forced to battle one another to the death as gladiators. Now, sadly, Rome considered itself to be a Christian city by this time, but the churches emptied to go watch this bloody spectacle. And, and, and when the monks saw the crowd of 80,000 people roaring for the blood of these two gladiators as they fought one another, he, he was horrified. And we're told that the Telemachus, he, he leapt into the, the arena and he placed himself between the two men, pleading with them to stop. And the crowd, they were so upset by the delay in the fight that they, be, they began throwing stones and they actually stoned Telemachus to death. He died. Here's the thing. Three days later, the emperor declared him a martyr and did away with the gladiatorial contests for good. Telemachus achieved peace, and he paid with his life. We might expect Jesus to say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will know peace. He doesn't say that. The peacemaker stands in the middle, and it's, it's messy, and it's hard, and, and hits are going to come your way. It's often like a, a hockey referee trying to, to separate two fighting hockey players, right? They're going to get the odd knock and, and, and they're going to get hurt in the middle of it at times. And, and at times they won't experience the very thing that they seek for others. Peacemaking is, it, it, it's actually got a, a form to it and it looks like that. It looks like the cross. Jesus went to the cross to achieve peacemaking for all humankind and for, there are going to be moments where we're going to have to lay down our comfort, uh, our, uh, our, 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 our safe life in order to step in the gap and, and bring peace to a situation or to, to, a, to a person. And that's part of its great power. That's why it's not a popular thing. That's why you have to go through all the other beatitudes before you get to this, before this becomes a mark of your life. But, but man, as we become peacemakers, it, 
it begins to change literally the environment of a community. And finally, peacemaking will require patience. The Apostle Paul helps us here. He tells us how we're to go about peacemaking. In Ephesians 4, he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What are the, the tools that Paul enlists there as, as, as things we can use as peacemakers? Notice what they are. Humility, gentleness, bearing with one another. There's, there's more than, than making peace than, than finding a skilled negotiator. There, there's more than simply finding the right words. More important, peacemakers need to clothe themselves with humility and with gentleness. And, and Paul very clearly says, be patient. I, I don't like that Paul said that, actually. I mean, seriously. I, in my life, I want to make peace in a hurry. I mean, I can think of my relationship with my dear wife where, where I want to just apologize quickly, not talk about the issue, and move on to our happy, peaceful feelings. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> Amen, brothers. Yeah. No? She wants to talk about it. Make sure I understand. That's so overrated, this whole understanding business. But peacemaking is going to require uh, patience. It's going to require perseverance. I don't think we're going to be able to expect to achieve peace if we're trying to do it in a hurry. You know, uh, and, and quite honestly, there's going to be situations you're aware of, family dynamics, maybe you're not in the heart of it, but you, you can see it and, and you don't even know where to start and you're going to have to begin praying into that and asking God for ideas. I, I know of a, a fellow who began to pray for his feuding uncles and he prayed for them for two years and then finally got inspired that when, when his aunt was dying of cancer, he... He actually invited this family gathering photo unit and, and, and God actually orchestrated. 20 years, these two brothers had not seen each other. They gathered around the dying sister and this fellow had a family photo arranged and, and there was peace in that family. But it took him two years of praying into that, asking God, give me an idea. What can I do here? It might involve that. It's going to be patient work. But let me say this, just as a conclusion, and, and uh, worship team, why don't you come on up here? Jesus blesses the peacemakers with this great blessing. What does he say? For they will be called children of God. Again, is that not the ultimate blessing? Is that not way better designation on your life than not enoughness? Not enough? In a sense, Jesus is saying, in Christ, in me, as a peacemaker, you're my child and you resemble my Father in heaven. Lord, would you make us instruments of your peace?